I want to quote from two well-known theologians to introduce our subject this morning. Uh, A quote from Calvin and Hobbes. Obviously, they're not theologians, are they? But they are well-known. They're well-known as uh, Bill Watterson's cartoon characters or comic strip characters. And occasionally, these uh, comic strips will hit on truth. Uh, That's important to remember, and things that are true to human nature. And in this particular uh, two or three frames of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, Calvin, of course, is the precocious six-year-old, and he has his animated stuffed tiger friend. And uh, so Calvin is speaking to Hobbes, and he says, You know, I really feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I really feel sorry that I did it. And Hobbes says to him, well, maybe you should go and apologize to her. And Calvin ponders it for a moment, and then he replies, you know, I was hoping for a less obvious solution. (laughs) And isn't that true? All too common to human nature that when we have done something wrong, we try as best we can to avoid responsibility, and if we can, find a more comfortable way to deal with it rather than just face it. So this morning we're going to talk about guilt and forgiveness and and freedom. And really, the point of guilt is to get us to the place of freedom. There's no virtue in feeling guilty. And sometimes in our society we kind of take on a victim mentality and somehow just there's some kind of honor or virtue and just feeling bad about what we've done, but we never do anything about it. The reality of guilt and responsibility is universal. We are responsible before God for our actions. We're responsible before others. Whether we admit it or not, that's just a universal truth. It's also true, universally, that feelings of guilt are common. Uh, But the difficulty with feelings of guilt is that they can really get confused and turned around and and, uh, have a variety of sources, really, uh, both legitimate and false. For instance, there is true guilt. We'll come back to that in a moment. That's important and vital to understand what is true guilt. And then there's floating guilt that's really difficult to identify. And a lot of people walk around with this cloud over their head of floating guilt. And then there's false guilt, which is closely associated with true, with uh, floating guilt. There's false guilt. And, uh, and that's, it's in itself is deceptively, deceptively confusing. And so we'll come back to those hopefully in, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, but there's also a modern form of guilt. Uh, that is somewhat unique to our age, I believe, our Western culture. And this was brought out to me in an article I read back in uh, late April. And it comes from Breakpoint, which is a radio program slash blog uh, originated by the late Charles Colson. And in this particular one, uh, a fellow named Roberto Rivera is writing. And, uh, and he points out something about this modern form of of guilt that is is particularly difficult because it's it's so general and it lacks a point of accountability and and, and a place to get relief. Now let me just read uh, some excerpts from it, and I think you you'll be able to identify what he's saying. Uh, the article opens this way: So traditional morality is out. At least that's what's claimed. Freedom of everything is in. If that's so, then why does everybody still feel so guilty? In 1966, Time Magazine infamously posed the question, Is God dead? And then just recently, on the same cover, 
the word was changed, and it said, is truth dead? The little answer to both those questions is no. God is not dead. Truth is not dead. But both questions point to an issue that has haunted the West for more than a century. How do you justify morality in a society that is increasingly that increasingly lives as if there is no one to hold them accountable and no one to define the difference between good and evil and truth and falsehood? Ironically, while we've reached the point where we've effectively cut the legs out from under the idea of sin, we're still very much in the grip of guilt. That was a subject by a recent column by David Brooks of the New York Times entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt, which in turn was inspired by an article by Winfred, uh, Wilfred McClay in Hedgehog Review. The dominant worldviews of our age have turned beliefs about right and wrong, good and evil, into little more than expressions of feelings. And that should have freed us from feelings of guilt. And yet we still feel guilty. Instead of the easygoing relativism that should logically follow from believing that right and wrong, guilt and innocence are simply matters of feelings, we live in what Brooks calls an age of of, uh, great moral pressure. Religion may be in retreat, he says, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Quoting from McClay, he writes, Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint. I can never give enough to the poor. You have colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, poverty, uh, human trafficking, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. And so you get the idea that it's, it's shifted from things identified as accountability to God that we just feel a general sense of responsibility and guilt because we never can be enough, do enough. People have this sense of guilt and sin, but they no longer sense that they live in a universe marked by divine mercy and grace and forgiveness. And this is the main point of this article. There is sin, there's guilt, but there's no formula for redemption. So that's a terrible place to be. That's a bondage. That's a trap to feel guilt and to feel responsible, to feel accountable, but not know where to go to get that burden lifted. And and throughout human history, people have wrestled with this issue and tried to figure out what do you do with guilt? How do you get rid of it? How do you handle it? And secular philosophers have worked at it and tried it. Many of you have heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher from back in the late 1800s. And uh, interestingly, this man started out studying for ministry and ended up being an atheist. And he purported, and he's had great influence in our modern culture, uh, even at this point. Uh, His philosophy was this. That people feel guilt, and that takes away their personal freedom. And so what you have to do is figure out a way to get rid of guilt. And in his view, God did not exist, but he said the reason people feel guilty is because they feel accountable to a God who holds them responsible. And they've offended him, and so now what do you do? Except since this trap that you're in because you're accountable to a holy God, and how can you get away from that? So his answer is... That's a false belief. There is no God. There is no truth. And the the lack of freedom that we feel to be ourselves and to do what we want is because of this false belief in a God to whom we're accountable, who's holy, and whom we've offended. 
So he said the answer is, and the way to get rid of this burden of guilt is, is to get away, of, get away from this false belief in a God who is holy, who is just, who holds us accountable, and who needs to forgive us. When you free them of that false belief, he said, then they experience greater freedom to fulfill the desires as they wish. And so they're freer people. The sad reality is that Frederick Nietzsche died as a young man, 56 years old, after spending 12 years dealing with an absolute, total, mental, physical breakdown. He could not live consistently with his own belief system. So the question is, how do we deal with guilt? Can we really be free in our spirit? Can we not be burdened with this sense of never measuring up, of being unworthy, anxiety over not doing enough, not being enough, uh, uh, this sense of accountability? Can Is there something that can be done with it in the Scripture? God says through the Scripture a resounding yes. There is. And we're going to look at this passage you see on the screen this morning, Psalm 32. And this is where David faces his, his guilt and expresses the, the freedom and the joy that he found in the forgiveness of God. And so that's where we're going to spend some time this morning, especially the first five verses. And we'll look at the whole passage, but the first five verses will be our focus. And so, uh, let's, Uh, Begin by reading those first five verses again that were read already. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The word blessed could sometimes is translated happy. Uh, But this person marked out for blessing and even a sense of, of joy. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into the drought of summer. And it says, Selah. In other words, pause, think about this. Three times that word is used. It's probably a musical notation since this was a poem and it was set to music. And so more than likely it was pause, contemplate, think about this. Because this is what's called... Uh, a, a song of contemplation. Then verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, Selah. And then over, skip over to verse 11. It closes as it opens with this great sense of joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. So the background of this psalm, we believe, most biblical historians and scholars think that, that, that it's a companion of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is that tremendous, detailed, yet discreet confession of David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered. And so some scholars believe that Psalm 51 is when close to the time that he finally opened up about his sin and he confessed it to the Lord. And then Psalm 32 probably follows sometime later that expresses some of what he had learned in being free in his own spirit and and, uh, more effective in his own kingship and his ministry as a result. And so if it's not specifically uh, associated with the sin of Bathsheba, obviously something had taken place in his life that gave him a tremendous burden of guilt and it had to be dealt with. And he did. And so there's a lot to learn here. This is, this is not just theory. Uh, this is not psychology. This is personal experience of this man in dealing with his failure. Uh, 
And, uh, and so you'll, you, you see in that, those first two verses, uh, and I, I love the way it opens because it just opens with an ex- exclamation of gladness and, and worship and rejoicing. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or the woman, we could say, to whom the Lord does not uh, impute or put, a, put to the account iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. By the way, you'll find throughout this poem a threefold repetition. You find here uh, transgression and sin and iniquity, and then down it's repeated again in verse 5 in his confession, and you see it down in verse 7 when he talks about a hiding place and, and preserving and surrounding with, uh, with songs of deliverance. In verse 8, instruct, guide, uh, and then... Uh, so over and over again, the word teach is there also. Over and over again, there's this threefold repetition. Why is that? Because in Hebrew poetry, in our English poetry, we like to rhyme the lines, don't we? It's not always, but primarily, and it makes it easy to remember. But in Hebrew poetry, the, the, the way they write their poetry is they emphasize over and over. They repeat, maybe using different words to repeat the same concept, and that, it, that helped drive home the truth. Uh, to them, and so we see that in this passage. So he points out here in his opening, he, he talks about the failure, and he talks about his transgression. That is, he rebelled. He he stepped over the line. He intentionally went beyond what God told him to do, and by that he created an offense. He sinned against those whom he loved, or who loved him, against God against his family, and if this is the Bathsheba incident, uh, even if it was, and it still applies because he was king and then leadership, he had, he had sinned against the soldiers and the nation, so you've got uh, the failure of transgression, then you've got sin, and then he speaks about iniquity, which means a, a perverse action, and then his deceit in covering it up. And if this is the Bathsheba incident, then it was a betrayal of the highest magnitude, And his spirit was weighed down, bound, and burdened. But in the same passage as he opens, he gives the hope. Blessed is he whose sin is forgiven, or transgression is forgiven. He uses that word to be lifted away. Blessed is those whose sin is covered, literally hidden, out of sight. Blessed is the one, the man who to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He does not place it to their account. Not because God is blind or he doesn't see it, but because he intentionally has forgiven it and he's moved it out of the way. He's hidden it. He's taking it out, taking it out of sight. And that's the work of his grace that we just sang about. Grace greater than our sin. God puts it out of sight. He does not keep a record of it. Part of the difficulty of dealing with guilt and hopefully we'll address that to some degree uh, in a few minutes, is that we, even after God has forgiven us, we can keep a record of it, either towards someone else or against ourselves. That's one of the tricks of the enemy. So how do we experience this this freedom, this, this grace, this forgiveness that is spoken about in these opening verses? And so I would say, as we open, it's good to be forgiven, uh, but there's some bad news and some good news that we need to look at to get to that point of forgiveness. And the bad news is that it's bad to cover our sin, to avoid responsibility. Verse 3 and 4, he speaks very frankly about the effect that 
his sin and guilt had on him. Now, I, I, there are some people that just don't seem to be bothered by things that are wrong. And they could use a whole lot more guilt and conviction. Uh, but then there are others that are overly sensitive and they're burdened by it continually. Uh, and then there are those, where, and this is where God wants us to be, to appropriately identify those things that are wrong and, and be burdened by it, not take it for granted, not avoid it, not excuse it, but deal with it. And that's what God wants us to do. That's where he's taking us. And we'll see that in verse 5. But here he talks about the effects of covering and trying to avoid our sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long. In other words, it had a dynamic physical effect on him. I've, in my 40-some years of, of ministry, I've, I've seen and talked with people that are just overwhelmed emotionally, spiritually, and physically by not dealing with the things that, that burden them. I remember 40 years ago, well, over 40 years ago now, on staff at another church, and... Um, my wife and I and our family met a young lady who was not too long out of college, and she started attending the church, became a very close friend of our family. Some of you have heard this story before. And uh, we could tell there was something about her that she just, she was just, there was this cloud over her emotionally and spiritually. And as we got to know her, she finally began to pour out her heart. And one day in particular, I remember talking to my wife and I, and she just, she just unloaded because we were asking her, you know, how was she feeling? What was going on? And she expressed that she had had a serious moral failure when she was in college. And, uh, and she had been trying to deal with it, trying to get rid of it. Uh, and she just could not get free. And we had the privilege of sitting down with her and opening the scripture and pointing her to some of the things that we're looking at this morning. And I cannot express to you the effect that it had on her. And the, you could see it when she began to realize Christ had paid for her sins. That he paid for her sins before she ever came to know Christ, before she was born, even while we're still enemies, Romans 5 says. Uh, John's been doing a tremendous job on Sunday morning as we've gone through Romans 1 through 5 and repeating over and over again. Sometimes it may seem like too much, but the point is that you, you, the repetition, I had a college professor who said repetition is theological mucilage. It makes it stick to, to understand that we're sinners, we're unworthy, we have a debt that we cannot pay, and we have a righteousness that we do not deserve and cannot earn, and Christ in his marvelous grace, grace greater than our sin, made his son the sacrifice so that he can give us the righteousness that we do not have and forgive us the debt that we owe that we couldn't pay. And so we were able to express all this to her. And, 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 and she, from that point on, obviously it was not perfect because we all have our battles. But there was a freedom and a joy and a peace in her heart that had not been there before. And so what David is talking about here is the effect that guilt has. He says, when I kept silent... My bones grew old through my groaning all day long. Now, if this was the Bathsheba incident, we know that there was at least a year that David did not come clean about this. And he tried to cover it up, tried to deal with it his own way. And he says it, it had this dynamic physical effect. Verse 4 says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, that strength, that sense of energy and joy... 
was turned into the drought of summer. I, I, he dried up spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Have you ever been there? I've been there. And it has a deep, painful effect. But what a gift. What if God just did kind of let us go? You see, when it says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me, he felt the conviction of the Lord about his sin. And see, that's, that's where we need, rather than trying to run from it, we need to accept that as a gift of God's grace. Because he's trying to point out, you have sinned against me and against others, and the only way to be free of that is to acknowledge it, as we'll see in a moment. As long as you skirt it, make excuses, try to get around it, you're going to stay trapped. Or you're going to be deceiving yourself, this spirit of deception spoken of in verse 1. And so, accept the conviction of God's Spirit when He's pointing out those things that are wrong as a gift from Him, a gift of His grace to bring you to the point of humility, confession, so that He can free you. He can forgive you and free you. You see, that's where he wants, that's the point of guilt. Not to get you locked into that and, and living under that cloud, but to free you from it. And so this is where, this is where David is. In our Sunday evening class on the stranger on the road to Emmaus, uh, it speaks about the roots of guilt and sin going all the way back to our original parents, uh, Adam and Eve. And, I just want to read an excerpt from this. Uh, it says, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says, Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. See, that's what that's the trick of the enemy. If you do this, you'll get pleasure from it. And the, the fact is, that when we get involved in those things, our eyes are open to things that are devastating, that can, can, can burden us and, and, and break the fellowship that we have with God. Commenting on this verse, it says, Adam and Eve immediately sensed that something was wrong. They had feelings they had never experienced before. Very uncomfortable ones. Called guilt and shame. They were devastated. The Bible says they were afraid, and for the first time, they realized they were naked. And so casting about for a solution, as we always do, it says they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Say, we're going we're gonna to take care of this. It doesn't feel good to feel bad and to feel guilty, so we're going to do something about it. And they made their own solution, or attempted to. Perhaps they thought if they fixed up the outward appearance, God would never notice that things had changed on the inside. They would just gloss things over and pretend that everything was okay. And this was man's first attempt to make things right in a world gone wrong. That certainly is not the way to handle guilt, is it? It doesn't work. Fig leaves, the fig leaf solution, as John has said in his messages, does not work. And by the way, let me just put this note in. I, I am so deeply, deeply grateful. I thank the Lord every day for bringing John and his family here to grace and for his teaching on Sunday morning, on Wednesday, and the classes he's been doing. And uh, I just consider it a gift to myself personally and to the church. And let's keep them in prayers. They're away for a couple of weeks as he's in study. And next weekend, by the way, is their anniversary. So uh, praise the Lord with them for that and pray for them to have a, a restful uh, weekend. But that's the, the, the beauty of, of the grace of God. He, he so, I think, effectively communicates. So let's go back to the types of guilt. See, it's important to understand that uh, 
that there are different kinds of guilt. Some of them are legitimate. Some are false. The only way to really be free is to understand true guilt. Now, true guilt is always connected with something that we have done where we've clearly violated a law, whether it be a law of God or uh, a law that uh, designated authorities have established. Uh, but it's when we've stepped over the line, we've broken a boundary, we've, we've, we've done wrong, we've sinned. And the Lord doesn't, uh, he doesn't play games with this. Uh, he identifies it, and, and then by his Holy Spirit, thankfully, he convicts us. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit, again, is always to an end. It's conviction with hope. Conviction with hope. Because when God convicts us of something that's wrong, it'll, it can be identified, whether in particular or, or more generally, where we've, we've failed and sinned. And then he will direct us toward a, the place of forgiveness and freedom. Whereas the other kinds of guilt, the floating guilt, and I would describe that as perhaps like we read about with our modern form of guilt that... Uh, you may be like me. Well, probably not because I get all kinds of religious literature, but I, I get, uh, I get appeals and notes and newsletters about all the things that are wrong in the world, all the needs there are in the world, and and mission fields and 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 people in need and people that need food and people that need rescued and and then you put on top of that all the political stuff that you get, and and you, you really need to be involved in that and get. Get involved. If you're a good citizen at all, then you're going to get involved in that and do something about it. And, and I can tell you that that can make you walk around with a cloud in the sense of, man, I, I can't handle all this. So what do you do with that floating guilt? It's not that you've done something wrong necessarily. It's just all these needs out there. And you know that God has blessed you and you have resources, especially in the Western world. And so, so what do you do? And I would suggest in that regard... That, that sense of responsibility, if, if there is something that you come up against that is le- legitimate, biblically and, 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 and culturally and with your family, then if you can respond, respond on the basis in which you come, if you come in contact with someone in need, then don't write it off because scripture does talk about that in James. If, if you see some, or, and in first John, if you see someone in need, a brother or someone else, then, then respond. But to walk around with this sense of guilt that you have something that other people don't have and, and you feel condemned by it, uh, that's not from the Lord. That's a, that's a floating guilt, a, 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 and something that's imposed from the outside. We have to learn to discern those things. And that's I can't explain to you just how to do it in your situation, uh, but I know that this is something that I deal with regularly. So there's there's that floating guilt, and then there's false guilt. This is some human standard that's been set up. Uh, you know, how long your hair should be, uh, what you should wear or shouldn't wear, where you should go or not go, and those kind of things. Scripture deals with those. Uh, and rather than walking around with this sense of guilt, read passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10 that address specifically those things that would be called doubtful things, where someone can have one persuasion and one another, and that's okay with the Lord. In fact, Romans 14 at the end, after addressing this issue, says, uh, happy is the man who does not condemn himself and the thing which he does. And so we can put that self-imposed guilt or let other people put guilt on us, and we need to discern those things. Another type of floating guilt is if we feel like we failed in some way. Maybe we lost a job, 
or maybe there's been a loved one that passed away and we feel like things were, were unresolved or maybe our finances went south. And, and we can feel like a failure, feel like we don't measure up, feel like we're just not good. We, we can go around with this, this sense of, of hopelessness and humiliation and aptitude. Uh, we, whether with true guilt or these other kinds of guilt, we can feel like, you know, what if, what if they find out what I did or what happened? Uh, what will they think? Uh, you can feel uncomfortable around people that you think have it all together. And let me just tell you, we know this, but let's just confirm it together. Uh, I will almost say we need to repeat it, but nobody has it all together. We just don't. I don't, you don't, and it's, it's a lie of the enemy to make you look at other people and think they have it all together and you feel bad about it. how low on the totem pole you are. Uh, and so that's not where the Lord wants us to be. Those are effective tricks of the enemy to keep us trapped and secretive and burdened, comparing ourselves with others. That gets us nowhere, and it just... It's just bad, and it's no answer at all. The only thing to do is if we have done something wrong, if we made a foolish decision on how we handle our money and because of that finances are bad, then then face it, deal with it, accept God's promise to forgive and grace to help, and move on. And keep your convictions clear and sure before the Lord on those things that are clearly right or wrong, and, and take to Him... Or maybe if you, you may need a counselor that can help you work through some of these things, like my friend that I mentioned, uh, so that you don't have this sense of floating guilt or being able to identify false guilt. The Lord always convicts with the hope of forgiveness. The enemy just wants us to live under that burden because then we feel separated from the Lord and from everybody else, and that gets us nowhere. The strange thing is the dynamics of guilt seems to be the same, whether they're whether it's false guilt, floating guilt, or true guilt. And so uh, if, if you're under a, a load like that, then may I encourage you, find someone you trust that understands the grace of God as well as the holiness and righteousness of God and, and, and help them, let them help you walk through this so that you can be free. That's where the Lord wants you. What do we do? What do we do? That's verse 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. He's talking to the Lord now. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what was the result? You forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Stuart Briscoe, a pastor up in in Wisconsin, uh, related the story of a, a young lady who was a member of his church. And uh, he, Briscoe is retired now, but let me just read to you what he said about uh, a young lady that uh, found this freedom. He says, I know a young woman who, when she was in school, worked at a women's fashion store. Uh, she couldn't seem to resist the temptation of the beautiful clothes, and so she began to steal them. Eventually, she became so fearful and ashamed that she first confessed her sin to the Lord and then went to her boss and asked for forgiveness. When she told her employer, she promised, said, I'll do everything I can to repay you. And she was completely surprised at his response to her repentance. He, he said, I'll do whatever I can to help you make this right. See, we're always afraid. Obviously, it doesn't always come out this way. But I can guarantee you before the Lord, 
He'll say, whenever we, we come clean before him, I'll do everything I can by my power to free you. He goes on to say, when she told this story to our church, she concluded in a way that I'll never forget. Throwing her arms in the air in a great gesture of freedom, she said, quote, Any of you can look at any part of my life and there'll be nothing hidden. All is confessed. All is forgiven. It's great to be free. That's where the Lord wants us. The enemy wants us under the cloud, under this conviction and that never we never seem to get free of. Conviction, rather guilt, is not a means to an end. I mean, it's not the end. Conviction by the Holy Spirit giving us guilt is a means to an end, and that end is always forgiveness and restoration. So it's good. It's good to be honest about our sin and failure. It can be difficult. Let me just give you a couple of words that may be helpful here. John has referred to them, in fact, as late as last Sunday, he referred to the New Testament word, confession. Let me give you the Old and New Testament word, one Hebrew, one Greek. Uh, confession in the Hebrew is the word yodah. On the screen, it just has the two A's without any accent marks. Both should have an accent mark. But now this is not the origin of the word yada yada. Not at all. This is a Hebrew word. Uh, that I think, from what I can understand, comes from a, a root word, yod, which means the open hand. And so it's the idea of, of declaring something as a fact, uh, stating something that you've recognized to be true. And it can be confessing praise to God in a good way, in a bad way. It can be confessing our sin. In the Greek, it's the homologeo. Legeo is a word, and homo is the same. So saying the same thing, this is what John explained last Sunday. And so confession is to speak the same thing, to agree, to admit, declare. That is to, to agree with God that it is what it is, that it's sin. We don't, we don't cover it over. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't excuse it. We don't, we just deal with it. We face it head on, name it for what it is, and then receive his forgiveness. Uh, if you would take just a moment as we get close to the end here, and uh, turn to two passages that will be helpful. These, I believe, are companion passages. The one that John referred to last Sunday in First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. And if you do not have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, or if you just want to mark it down, look it up later. And then along with that, Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28. Let's look at the New Testament one first in First John chapter one. This is remember this is not about gaining salvation. This is written to people who are already believers about their walk and fellowship with the Lord. And in First John chapter one verse nine, it says, John speaking of himself and those to whom he was writing, he says, "If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins." And notice the expansion of God's grace here and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I take that to mean he, he wipes the slate clean. When we're honest enough to deal with those things that we can identify, then God not only cleanses the, cleans the slate of that, but all of it, even stuff that we have not fully recognized. That's the wonderful, inexplicable grace of God. If we'll agree with God, God, this is sin. It's not, I didn't just fail. There's all kinds of ways we can, we can deal with sin. We can say it's no big deal. We can say, well, it was not as bad as it could have been. Or we can say, well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't do this. All those things are, are, 
they don't deal with the issue. Nor is it dealing with the issue to say, well, I've done it again. I'm just so sorry. It doesn't make any difference. I'm just going to go on. None of those are answers, but they're common responses. But this warrior king, David, a manly man, somehow seemed to be sensitive about what he had done against the Lord. And he openly, readily, almost disarmingly honest about his sin. And that's what John is saying here. If we agree with God, name it for what it is, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it's not? Okay. Well, let's keep going. Maybe you'll agree later. The faithfulness of God to forgive. By the way, I, I thought of this as I was preparing this. Uh, there's, a, there's a theology that's name it and claim it. Well, I have trouble with that. But this is one you can. Name the sin, claim God's forgiveness. You can name it and claim it in this instance. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, verse 13. The Old Testament version of this, He who covers his sin will not prosper. That's just it. That's what David expresses, the physical, emotional, spiritual effect it had on it. But whoever confesses, that is, as the Scripture says, the Hebrew word means it declares it as fact, confesses his sins, uh, and forsakes them, will have mercy. You see, the Lord's not interested in us confessing as a tool to get back to doing what we've always, always done. Going to the little box and confessing it so we can go back out and do the same thing the next week. Now, he doesn't let his children run wild and he'll keep his hand heavy upon you until you deal with it and say, Lord, I'm done with it. And so that's the, that's the beauty and that, that's how we deal uh, with sin. And it says again here uh, that we need to think about this. It ends with Selah in verse 5. Think about it uh, and understand that God's not looking to humiliate, but he is looking for humility. Nor is he looking for appeasement, by the way. I've done this, and now I confess, but then I need to do a lot of stuff to make God happy. See, God doesn't work like you and I work. When he says, I forgive it, and I cleanse it, I remove it, I don't impute it to you anymore, the only reason he can do that is because in the pictures in the Old Testament of atonement by animal sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, he can cleanse us. He died for our sins when we were still enemies, when we were still sinners. So, So God knows the score. He's not surprised, and and he will deal with it as we deal with it the way he calls us to. And by the way, there are going to be consequences either way. Sometimes when we've done something seriously wrong, there are repercussions that last, maybe throughout life or maybe for a little while. And we may not want to deal with it because we don't want to deal with the consequences. But frankly, the consequences are going to be there either way. I'd rather deal with it as a person who's been forgiven and freed and tried to deal with it my own way and carry all this junk around. And that's what I believe the Lord wants. Some the companion passage in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says this, when David was confessing his sin about Bathsheba, he says, You, don't, you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Uh, under the Jewish system, sacrifices, burnt offerings were, were good things. But he was interested in the heart, not just the outward action. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. When we come before him in honesty and confession and brokenness, 
then the beauty of it is that God says, I forgive. I don't impute it to you anymore. I've got it covered, literally. And you're free. Now, what you need to do is believe that. The enemy won't whisper in your ear your failure. The Lord wants to whisper in your ear you've been forgiven. Now walk into integrity with me. And that's what the balance of the passage uh, is about. Let me just read that and we'll close. For this cause everyone, after he's confessed here, he says, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you. There's a return to prayer and openness before the Lord. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Uh, There's, again, this sense of connection with the Lord and his protection and freedom. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you shall go, guide you with my eye. Probably David is saying this. He, He can return to effectively influencing others in the right way. Cautions them, do not be like a horse or like a mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Don't don't be like that. Don't make God have to kick you in the back end like you have to do a mule. Be open and sensitive and humble and contrite before him. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, notice this phrase, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, those that are forgiven and in fellowship. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Close with a story. I read some time back. Uh, it was a king in Prussia back in the 1800s, King Frederick II. And he was visiting one of the prisons in Berlin. And uh, he was the king, remember, and he could pardon anybody. And so he was visiting the prisoners. doesn't say what occasioned this visit, but he was visiting, and these prisoners would come up to him hoping they could get a pardon, and they would begin to tell him, well, you know, this is what I'm charged with, but I, I really was not guilty. This is the circumstance. And so they were proclaiming their innocence, really. And as he walked around and talked to these prisoners, he noticed that one man was sitting over by himself on a bunk and uh, not saying anything with his head down. And the king walked over to him and said, uh, Sir, uh, why are you in here? And he says, for, for armed robbery, uh, your majesty. Are you guilty? Yes, I deserve what I've, the sentence I was given. He finished, king finished his visit. And before he went out of the jail, he told the bailiff, he says, go get that guilty man. I don't want him in here corrupting all these innocent prisoners. <laughs> Powerfully illustrates this truth. See, only the forgiven, I mean, only those uh, who are guilty can be forgiven. If you're not willing to admit your guilt, then how can you be forgiven? Only the guilty can be forgiven. Only the forgiven can be free. And that's where God's grace and mercy takes us through Christ. It is not diminishing the sin. It's being honest about the magnitude of it. It's realizing that God has taken care of it that it was offense against him and against others. God, I agree with you that it was wrong, and I accept the forgiveness that you promise and you offer. You don't have to beg for it. You don't have to work for it. It's given when you're honest and broken and open before him. Now, Psalm 32 is written to those who are people of faith, believers. If you're not sure where you are in your relationship with God, I want to tell you this morning, on the authority of Scripture, that you can have an eternal, permanent relationship 
with God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you've been, what you've done. The work of Christ on the cross sufficiently took care of that. And we know it because the words that Christ cried out on the cross is, It is finished. It's done. Now, John repeats this every week, and I'll say amen to what what he said. We have a debt that we cannot pay. It's a death penalty. And the only way you and I can pay it is not by our good works, but by eternal separation from God. But Christ came and bridged the gap between us and him and perfectly paid the debt for our sins. And then he rose again as a testimony that this is true, that it is done. And now through his righteous, perfect payment, and we come to him in faith, believing that he has paid the debt for our sins and trusting in the work of Christ alone, not our promises, not our goodness, not what we do for God, but what he's done for us through Christ. When we believe that, receive from him the free gift of his eternal forgiveness, then we have a relationship with him that will last forever. And then we begin this journey of walking with him. And there will be ups and downs. But the grace that brings us to Christ for eternal salvation is the same grace that will enable us day to day to walk in forgiveness and freedom. If you have any questions about having a relationship with the Lord or dealing with this burden that you may be carrying, I would love to talk with you. John would. But you just you let me know afterwards and, uh, and love to, to set up a time to chat with you. May we bow together in prayer. Father, how deeply grateful we are to you for the promise of your forgiveness. Lord, we acknowledge that we continually sin and transgress and are guilty of of doing things our own way and being even deceitful and covering up even the most perverse thoughts and actions. But we thank you that you were fully aware of it before it was ever committed and you loved us in spite and you even sent your own son, even while we were sinners, even while we were still enemies, to pay the debt that we could not pay, to give us a forgiveness and righteousness that we could not earn. We thank you for that. We thank you for your ongoing daily forgiveness that we can be constantly returned to fellowship with you when it's broken based on your promise in 1 John 1, nine. Lord, may we never use your goodness and grace and faithfulness as an excuse to sin, but as a reason to serve you faithfully by your strength. We pray for these things in the name of Christ, to your honor, and to the good of your people, we pray. Amen.